Acts Reenacted. Let's continue our series. So if you've got Bibles on you, Acts chapter 10 today. Finally getting there. We're in section 13 of our, of our series. But Acts chapter 10 will be our text today. So with Saul safely tucked away in Tarsus after his early days of life in Damascus and Jerusalem, Luke is now turning his attention to a significant event in the life of Peter. And this particular moment actually changed the course of the church as a whole. It, it, it really caused the church to go in a whole new direction and, and it really awakened a massive beast within them that, that God had put in there to actually go ahead and do something tremendous. So uh, yeah, at the moment, we've seen that Peter is currently in the Mediterranean port town of Joppa and he's in his usual style doing miracles and doing ministry and loads of people are coming to Christ again. You know, so about it's seemingly business as usual. Uh, for Peter at this stage but now we're going to pick up the story in Acts chapter 10 now we have a bit of Bible so we'll break it up and do it in in bite-sized chunks so keep your thumb in there throughout the course of this morning verse 1 at Caesarea there was a man called Cornelius a centurion in what was known as the Italian regiment he and all his family were devout and God-fearing he gave generously to those in need and prayed to God regularly One day at about three in the afternoon, he had a vision. He distinctly saw an angel of God who came to him and said, Cornelius. Cornelius stared at him in fear. What is it, Lord? He asked. The angel answered, Your prayers and gifts to the poor have come up as a memorial offering before God. Now send men to Joppa to bring back a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He is staying with Simon the Tanner, whose house is by the sea. When the angel who spoke to him had gone... Cornelius called two of his servants and a devout soldier who was one of his attendants. He told them everything that had happened and then sent them to Joppa. So the story begins in the city of Caesarea here. This was actually the administrative capital of Judea. And uh, this was the home of a centurion named Cornelius. He's a captain of the Roman army and the Bible says here that he's considered a good man. He's clearly good at his job, which is why he's got a prestigious rank of of captain in the strongest army in the world at the time. Uh, He's good in his community in that he's committed to acts of charity, and he has the respect of the local Jews in the town. And that was no mean feat, given the fact that the Jews considered the Romans oppressors. They were an oppressive leadership. They were under the hands of a dictator. And for a, a representative of that dictatorship to be able to reside in a city and have the, nation, the people of the area respect him, that's a pretty big deal. We see he's a strong family man, and they too were respected in the community. And he even influences his family to pray to the God of the Jews. A lot like a lot of people did. Who, anybody who lived amongst the Jews tended to go down this path. Uh, you see, to the Romans and to many other ethnic groups out there, the idea of... You know, they knew loads of different gods and different pagan practices and and they saw all these different things that were somehow called religion but the jewish view of one god and a strong moral code to many of these other nationalities was a bit of a breath of fresh air and we heard about that with the the ethiopian eunuch and many people from from that region would convert to judaism because they saw that there was actually some good things about what they saw and and cornelius was one of those sort of guys But he is clearly not a Jew. He's not a Jew here. He's clearly defined as a man outside the Jewish community to the point that he isn't even considered a Jewish convert. He's not a proselyte at the gate or any of those other fancy ranks. This guy is completely a Gentile guy. He's not a Jewish guy at all. He certainly is a man who has a respect for God, 
but is not considered a true follower here. Despite the respect he has shown and despite the way he has treated the Jews, there is clearly a huge cultural gap in place. And the Jews, in no uncertain terms, would have made him very aware that he was a great guy, but he was not one of them. Now, Cornelius is a great picture of many of our community today. Our city is filled with good people. Would you agree with that? There are incredibly good people out there in our society. There are many non-religious people in the community who are committed to doing good things and are committed to their families and they're committed to morals that we might even call godly. They will even pray. Surveys in America reveal that 90% of all people admit to praying at least sometime in their life. And that figure has stayed consistent for the last 50 years. But how many know, if 90% of the American population pray, we know very well that they are not Christians. They're not all Christians, are they? There's a missing link in their faith journey that needs a bit of clarification. And in the case of Cornelius, God had a guy 30 k's up the road who was more than able to set him straight. That guy, that guy just happened to be the Apostle Peter. And that's where we pick up our text now in verse 9. Let's keep reading. About noon the following day, as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the roof to pray. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. And while the meal was being prepared, he fell into a trance. He saw heaven opened and something like a large sheet being led down to earth by its four corners. It contained all kinds of four-footed animals as well as reptiles and birds. Then a voice told him, Get up, Peter, kill and eat. Surely not, Lord, Peter replied. I have never eaten anything impure or unclean. The voice spoke to him a second time. Do not call anything impure that God has made clean. This happened three times, and immediately the sheet was taken back to heaven. Then Peter was wonder- well, while Peter was wondering about the meaning of the vision, the men sent by Cornelius found out where Simon the Tanner's house was and stopped at the gate. They called, asking if Simon, who was known as Peter, was staying there. In about 780 BC, the prophet Jonah stood on the city of Joppa looking for a ship that would take him as far from his ordained mission field as possible. He was told to go to the godless city of Nineveh. And he was far from thrilled about that, if you remember the story of Jonah. One day I will preach that. Now, eight decades later, in the same town, the Lord has presented a new mission to a new kind of follower. And this new mission is laid out on a sheet before Simon Peter. The vision presented to Peter here was designed to, make him, to shake him up pretty hard. Within the Jewish mindset, and by extension the Jewish Christian mindset, resided some deep-seated flaws in their attitude towards outsiders. Their theology on certain things had become severely distorted, and as a result, they'd stopped being an effective mouthpiece of God to the rest of the world. God had been clear throughout the entire Old Testament period about the influence on the world that Jews were supposed to have. And it began with the promise God made to Abraham. Out of your descendants, the entire world will be what? Blessed. In the Psalms and the prophets, it had been foretold that the Messiah would inherit the nations. In Isaiah 2.2, it is prophesied that the nations of the world would eventually stream to the temple of the Lord. 
And eventually, there will be a time, as told by Joel 2.28, that the spirit of the Jewish God will be poured out over all mankind. And we see that Peter already referred to that particular passage on the day of Pentecost. The issue was, however, that while the one true God had placed the Jews in a place of great privilege on the world scene, the Jews had twisted this position from an elect, a position of election before God into a doctrine of favoritism. They developed an erroneous sense of racial pride. And then they grew in hatred towards anyone outside their religious position. The Gentiles were thought of as dogs. And we even saw that come out even when Jesus talks to, talks to that lady in, in Tyre and Sidon. And worse still, the Gentiles were well aware of how they were viewed. This was hardly the open invitation for the world to know the truth through them that God had intended. Today's church faces a major risk of falling into this same mindset. And in many communities today, even Wangaratta, there are Christians who have taken their position of salvation for granted as if it was somehow deserved. And worse still, have begun to look with disdain on those outside of where they stand. And sadly, the world around them knows it. You just got to look at some places which are compounded up and no door, no signage, no welcome mat. Just, that's just one putting one out there. This is precisely the attitude that is present at present in Peter. And Jesus is all about smashing this attitude down fast. And to do this, he lays a wide variety of animals before him and presents it as an all-you-can-eat buffet. He instructs Peter, go ahead, dine out, go for it. The law of Moses had made a comprehensive list of things which were determined to be clean and unclean foods. Lamb and beef was on the menu, thankfully enough, souvlaki for me. Pork was not, no crackling for my wife. Chicken was in, crocodile was not. Australians couldn't be in this one. It was that sort of distinction. They made many distinctions about their food. It was primarily about symbolism for the Jews. Bearing in mind that the Old Testament pointed... Here's the purpose of the... This is the Old Testament in a nutshell. The Old Testament pointed to the frailty and uncleanness of man in the eyes of a holy God. And it prophesied that a Messiah from God would restore the righteousness that we once lost. That's the Old Testament right there. But in first century Judaism, these rules were enforced to maintain an over-the-top appearance of holiness. It was lost on them that at heart, things remained unclean within anyway. Peter was still swept up in this thinking, and although his theology was somewhat evolved, where he could take worship away from the temple, he still had this clean, unclean mindset, which would actually do more harm than good when bringing Gentiles to Jesus. And in later chapters, we'll see how harmful these mindsets could have become. Peter was proud of his position of cleanliness. And he even states this to the Lord. I've never touched an unclean thing in my life. You should be proud of me for that. But the truth was, the outward was nice, but Jesus wasn't impressed with his attitude here. That's the reason he makes this huge reply. If I declare something clean, don't call it otherwise. If I call something touchable, edible, partakeable, or includable, don't argue. Just obey. It's with that thinking music in his head 
we then go on to the next part of the story. Let's go to verse 19 here. This is a long bit, so let's just keep reading a bit. While Peter was still thinking about the vision, the Spirit said to him, Simon, three men are looking for you. Get up, go downstairs, and do not hesitate to go with them, for I have sent them. Peter went down and said to the men, I'm the one you're looking for. Why have you come? The men replied, We've come from Cornelius the centurion. He's a righteous and God-fearing man who is respected by all the Jewish people. A holy angel told him to ask you to come to his house so that he could hear what you have to say. Then Peter invited the men into the house to be his guests. The next day, Peter started out with them and some of the believers from Joppa went along. The following day, he arrived at Caesarea. Cornelius was expecting them and he called together his relatives and close friends. As Peter entered the house, Cornelius met him and fell at his feet in reverence. But Peter made him get up. Stand up, I am only human myself. While talking with him, Peter went inside and found a large gathering of people. He said to them, You are well aware that it is against our law for a Jew to associate with Gentiles or visit them. But God has shown me that I should not call anyone impure or unclean. So when I was sent for, I came without raising any objection. May I ask why you sent for me? Cornelius answered, Three days ago I was in my house praying at this hour at three in the afternoon. Suddenly a man in shining clothes stood before me and said, Cornelius, God has heard your prayer and remembered your gifts to the poor. Send a job for Simon, who was called Peter. He's a guest in the house of Simon the Tanner who lives by the sea. So I sent for you immediately, and it, was good, and it was good of you to come. Now we're all here in the presence of God to listen to everything the Lord has commanded you to tell us. Then Peter began to speak. I now realize how true it is that God does not show favoritism, but accepts those from every nation who fear him and do what is right. You know the message God sent to the people of Israel, announcing the good news of peace through Jesus Christ, who is Lord of all. You know what has happened throughout the province of Judea, beginning in Galilee after the baptism that John preached. How God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and power, and how he went around doing good and healing all who were under the power of the devil, because God was with him. We are witnesses of everything he did on the country of the Jews and in Jerusalem. They killed him by hanging on a cross. But God raised him from the dead on the third day and caused him to be seen. He was not seen by all the people, but by witnesses whom God had already chosen, by us who ate and drank with him after he rose from the dead. He commanded us to preach to all the people and to testify that he is the one whom God appointed as a judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about him that everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins through his name. While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit came on all and who heard the message. The circumcised believers who had come with Peter were astonished that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out even on Gentiles. For they heard them speaking in tongues and praising God. Then Peter said, Surely no one can stand in the way of their being baptized with water. They have received the Holy Spirit just as we have. So he ordered that they be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. Then they asked Peter to stay with them for a few more days. Jesus is clear at the start of this portion of scripture that we just read then to Peter. Go with these people without hesitation. As the Greek suggests, it says this, go without misgivings or distinction. That's the Greek translation here. In other words, go into this new opportunity with an open mind about what God can do. And keep in mind the vision you just received. It's going to make some sense to you in a few days time in Caesarea. And sure enough, it does. He gets into town and he's led to the house of a Gentile man. And right there and then, you could picture as he's walking to that place, the inner Jew within him is starting to rise up a little bit here. 
Could you imagine what's going through his mind at that stage? I'm not sure I should be walking in here right now. This looks like outsider stuff. Is God going to leave me at the doorstep as I go in? Will this destroy my credibility with the other local Jews? If this goes wrong, I could be in a bit of trouble here. I've learned in life that God does that sometimes. But we see here, as in many circumstances that you and I face, that God is clearly in control. And when Cornelius explains the reason for summoning Peter, it becomes abundantly clear that God is about to do something big. God does big things when humans obey. Simple as. That's a simple principle right there. This was part three of the Great Commission coming to be here. Jerusalem had been well and truly reached. Judea and Samaria and even Galilee had given the church a strong foothold. And now was time for the outer parts of the world. It's a big thing for any faith community to come to this point where the outer parts of the world can be reached. And it's incredibly crucial how any faith community responds when they understand that they're at that point. We read here that this realization causes Peter to go right into ministry mode. He doesn't recoil. He doesn't back off. He doesn't go, gee, maybe another time another person. He says, no, 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 this is my time to do this. God's ordaining something here. And Luke's account here gives some detailed insight about how he went about that, which is worth noting given the new audience at hand here. First up in verse 26, we see that Peter creates an atmosphere of equality. How many know that matters? You can't go coming into people, lording over people. He came in and created an atmosphere of equality here. Cornelius falls at his feet. And Peter stops him with a simple statement. Mate, I'm a man just like you. And he goes on to say this. Basically, this is what he's saying. This is a conversation between two mere human beings that God has ordained to occur. Don't view me as a God and I won't view you as a dog. Throw out the Jewish-Gentile divide even though to do so is to break a big taboo on my part and let's talk simply as men about the things of God because that is clearly what Jesus wants us to do here. He then presents a very Gentile version of the story of Jesus here. You've got to remember that the previous audiences had godly backgrounds to draw upon. They had some familiarity with the Old Testament and they understood a little bit of Scripture and the process of the law. All they needed was a bit of clarification about where Jesus fitted into all that. But a Gentile was nowhere near as familiar. Even if he prayed... And even if he admired the concept or the scripture and ceremony part was completely foreign to him, it was withheld from this man. Peter was starting from absolute scratch. With that in mind, we can then unfold his message and here it is in a nutshell. Cornelius, I know you've heard things about this guy named Jesus. You've heard he was a pretty good guy. You've heard he was a miracle worker and you've heard and you know there was something pretty special about him because it looks like God was involved somehow. Isn't that all how people think a lot out there? It's true. He was hung on a cross. It's also true that he rose again and I am a witness of it all. 
I stand before you utterly convinced that Jesus is alive and well. I also stand before you convinced, regardless of your race, gender, background, or class, Jesus wants me to let you know all about him. Jesus is the one all mankind is going to stand before when it's all said and done. And if you place your faith in him, your sin will be forgiven and judgment day will be a time of joy, not sorrow. Cornelius, you're so close right now. But without faith, you're still so far away. That's the nutshell right there. Pretty simple, isn't it? And that was enough. We see that clearly. The Holy Spirit took over and everyone became aware of the living presence of Jesus. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone and they suddenly appear all emotional or there's a change in the atmosphere as you're talking? Or a sudden new level of openness when you do it discussing these things? I've seen it many times over. It's the Spirit getting involved and actually backing up the claims of our claims to Jesus. This moment was the final piece of evidence Peter needed to convince him that reaching Gentiles was now part of Jesus' plan for the church. When God gets personally involved, what other evidence do you need, really? Next came a massive step for this church. Baptism. Peter knew that God was making all this happen by now. And since he saw how accepted they were by God by the pouring out of the Spirit, he's able to conclude that it was enough to allow the very much Jewish church to accept them as well. Of course, to do this, like all new believers, they were to go through the waters of baptism. And then things were complete. God had accepted Gentiles into the Jewish-based church. Outsiders with no links to God whatsoever were now being welcomed by open arms. First by the Holy Spirit, then by the church itself. But then there's a backlash. The first part of Acts 11 picks up the controversy in Jerusalem here. I'll read this real quick to you. The apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of an uncircumcised and ate with them. Now remember, in ancient culture, that's a statement of deep intimacy there. Starting from the beginning, Peter told them the whole story. Now as we go to verse 17, because you've already read the story twice. He concludes his story with this. If God gave them the same gift he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? When the people heard this, they had no further objections and praised God, saying, So then, even the Gentiles, God has granted repentance that leads to life. Imagine that meeting. They're called a members meeting. That's pretty much what it was. They gathered Peter, got Peter in front of them. What business do Gentiles have coming to our God? We Jews are the promised people, not them. Peter's lesson had not been learnt by the rest of the church yet. Even today, it seems that only a few will step out from the circumcised crowd, as it were. And they often face a backlash from their church as a result. And I've got, battle, I've got pastor friends who've got battle scars to prove this all around the country. But Peter had an ironclad defense here that he brings to the church. 
it was clear that Jesus was initiating this new thrust of mission to the Gentiles. And Peter could prove it with four clear pieces of evidence here. It began with divine vision. You got a sheet buffet that, was, that Peter saw in, in the city of Joppa. It continued with a divine command. God clearly speaking, go with, us, you know, go with those that are seeking you without reservation. It then goes on with a sense of divine pre- preparation where both parties being readied here for the voice of the Lord, both Peter and Cornelius. And it concludes with divine action with the arrival of the Holy Spirit. It was clearly God doing this work. And if that wasn't enough for the church to hear, there was human proof too. We read here that six Jewish men went with Peter to Caesarea, making seven human witnesses. In certain ancient civilizations like the Egyptians, seven witnesses were sufficient for an ironclad legal proceeding. In Roman law, seven seals were needed to authenticate an important document like a will or many other legal documents and perhaps even a piece of uh, future scripture here. The evidence was overwhelming. And finally the church came around. There was no arguing against something Jesus was clearly doing. One of the great scholars summarized the last verse of that, uh, that text that I just read then really nicely. It says, Criticism ceased, and in its place, worship began. I know which one I'd rather be doing, eh? Worshipping after Jesus getting involved rather than criticizing because we took a chance. I'm going to wind up today's Bible coverage with two quick thoughts from this text that I'm hopeful we can take home with us today. And they'll be on the screen here. Don't assume people are saved or righteous just because they are good. It is clear that Cornelius has a high level of goodness about him here. Even a sense of being devout and in the eyes of the world considered righteous. The text even shows us that God was happy with his choices in that he made an effort for good and not for evil. He was only one step away from being truly right and standing with Jesus. But before Peter's visit, Cornelius was not saved. The angel that visited him didn't present the gospel either. Instead, he gave Cornelius the choice to send for Peter or not. And it clearly appears, given the timelines here and travel times, that Peter's vision only appeared after Cornelius sent his messengers. He was told to send for Peter because Peter has a message to share that would set him straight. As good as he appeared to be, he needed to be preached to. He needed to come to repentance and he needed to place his faith in Jesus Christ. It's faith that saves us, not our own works, lest any man should boast, as told in Ephesians, what chapter? Two. <laughs> not our baptism when we were young. Not our fleeting time in the church youth club way back when. Not our perceived goodness in the community today. But faith, here and now, keeps us in a state of biblical righteousness before God. There are well-known cardinals who say otherwise, and on national TV actually said, as long as your good outweighs your bad, you're going to be set. In answer to an atheist question saying, I don't believe in God, but if I face him when I'm dead, will he let me into heaven? Wrong. Scripture's abundantly clear otherwise. 
Second, don't shun the uncircumcised. That's an awful word to use on Sunday morning church, isn't it? (laughs) This was a distinction that separated the Jews from the Gentiles. It was a very close, intimate proof that they were different to the rest of the world. And uh, they had very close, intimate reminders that they were different. Whomever God puts in our path who responds to the gospel becomes our responsibility as a church. No matter how much or how little they know about our faith and our people. And in this area, I'm going to go on my little soapbox here and actually say, I believe I'm preaching to the choir. This is not a rebuke in any way. When I was interviewed, I was told that the church intended to release me to the community a bit so we could have a bit of outreach. And, I've, and Jen and I have actually sent, felt that throughout the course of the year, that, that you guys have been right behind any evangelistic thrust we've talked about here. I can tell you now that a growing youth ministry as well as a bunch of new faces on Sunday mornings have you to thank for that. The challenge is don't lose that. Even if a new person takes your favorite seat. I've seen that happen in churches. (laughs) Even if a new person offers a mild swear word as an objective to describe their positive experience of church. I have been told on occasions that my sermons are bleeping good. Even if they don't quite grasp what we believe yet. Or take all our biscuits at coffee time. No scotch fingers for me. Or any other thing that can bring mild grief. If Jesus brings people in, then it's our collective responsibility to welcome them and disciple them. But you know that already. Thank you for being the faithful church that you are. Let's pray and then we'll we'll dismiss.